The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Tuesday, August 28th, 2018 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Louie, 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 Louie. Everyone on Twitter hates you. So Louis C.K. is back with his wry brand of self-deprecating humor that we all found so hilarious until we connected it to a series of unasked for masturbation sessions. Well, now Louis is back. He did comedy at the Comedy Cellar in New York. And I have some thoughts about the propriety of it all, but I'm going to hold on to those thoughts in general until I think some more about it and see how it plays out. But I will now offer two observations and one prediction. My first observation is that Twitter lit up with disapproval, nearly universal condemnation from such comics as Aperna Nanchurla and the producer of The Ellen Show, Andy Lastner, and a lot of other people. Now, Michael Ian Black voiced support of Louis and was roundly condemned. So here's observation one. This is not an accurate reflection of public sentiment. Well, public sentiment. Most people will really care about Louis C.K. one way or another. But among the constituencies that might matter to Louis, which is to say his peers, his potential customers, and those who might have the power to actually shame him, the Twitter outpouring is not representative. Louis's potential defenders, or those willing to give him a second chance, have no incentive to voice those opinions now. Those who are speaking out will be affirmed by others speaking out. But if right now the publicly expressed sentence seems to be running massively against Louis, I would say that is misleading. I don't know what the actual sentiment is. It's just not what it looks like right now. Second observation, almost every single comic out there is going to support him. Aperna didn't, and some others won't. But comics in general, they're a tribe, and they hold some values above others. And perhaps their greatest value is free expression. They also have a respect for genius. And Louis was the most respected comic in America, among other comics. These comedians, they're involved in an art form, and they view Louis as the height of achievement in their form. That means a lot to them. Also, to them, Louis is a real person that they know mostly and that they can empathize with, and his victims are more abstractions. And finally, as much as we say comics are liberal, they're not exactly nurturing types. Comedy is about killing or eating it, and they have, in general, a warrior's mentality, and I think most of them view Louis's victims with a lot less sympathy than the public at large might. Those are my observations. Here's my prediction. I'd say Louis will reclaim his career. I don't know to what extent. I don't know if he'll have TV shows on networks, but he'll have at least a successful touring career. He'll talk about it on stage. He'll do so with insight and sensitivity or what we perceive as sensitivity. He's really good at connecting on a human level. It might be sincere. It might be a function of charisma. Like most of us, it's probably a little bit of both. America will not want to punish itself by not being entertained by Louis. And that's the thing with Louis C.K. or Chuck Berry or V.S. Naipaul or any great artist. The public wants the art, and they don't want to deny themselves the pleasure they might find in the art because of ethics. There is a way ethics might play out, and that some percentage of people will no longer be able to find Louis funny, but I think that percentage will be relatively small unless Louis himself is so ill-adept at giving the audience permission to laugh. 
Judging by his history as a comic genius, I see no reason to think that Louis' stand-up won't be able to do the work of winning over a potential audience that wants to forgive him. And that's maybe the non-cynical way to look at it. Maybe we're not all, if we do forgive Louis, maybe we're not misogynistic enablers. Maybe we're not just pleasure-seeking libertines. Maybe what I'm predicting is an eventual Louis comeback will mark us as empathetic. Sarah Silverman was on Alan Alda's podcast, which is all about empathy, and she was saying that Louis, who's a great friend of hers, called her after she talked about his admission on her Hulu show. His younger daughter was fiercely defensive of him, and, you know, and, and he actually had to tell her, you know, all these people are just doing their job, and we, you know, you know, but, but... Her, his older daughter, he felt he had kind of lost. And she came over and she showed him the piece I did. And she said, I can love you even though you did bad things. Mm. And that was Alan Alda's mmm at the end. That's a kind of hallmark of his show. Of course, loving the sinner, not the sin, or forgiving trespasses. It's a framing that certainly gets us off the moral hook. But that is the point of my prediction. Louis will have a comeback And most of us will allow him to make us laugh again because we want to be let off the hook a little bit. On the show today, I spiel about gerrymandering. Yeah, it's exciting. I just pulled you in, didn't I? But first, Maria Konnikova is here to play Is That Bullshit on the issue of not eating. That's right. Fasting. Is that bullshit? The history of humanity has basically gone like this. We didn't have enough calories. We did whatever we could to have enough calories. Then we had enough calories. And maybe a week and a half later, too many calories, material abundance, doing everything we can to get rid of some of these calories. I may be being reductive, but that basically is what happened. So given that we now live in this world of everything and too much whenever we want it, there has arisen an idea that perhaps taking away the calories, in fact, radically taking away the calories, Mm -hmm. in fact, totally taking away the calories could be good for what ails us. And what is the thing that ails us most scarily of all? It is cancer. So the question that we are proposing in our ongoing segment called Is That Bullshit? is this. Fasting as a means to attack cancer. Maria Konnikova is here. She is author of The Biggest Bluff. Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. I'm going to try that I'm, again, I, but I'd like some, I'd like some energy this all time. All right. My, my hey, Mike, was because I was like, oh, shit, fasting. Oh, my God. Yeah. I just I can't get excited about fasting. You I'm sorry. We'll, we'll leave it in because I think you're right. So I know people propose fasting for all manner of yes. ailments, like I said. And I know that people are trying to come up with lots of ways to cure cancer. Yes. So I suppose it was just inevitable that this radical of ways that's entirely in a person's control would be trotted out as an anti-cancer mechanism. Absolutely, absolutely. And back before we kind of knew anything about cancer, Hippocrates <laughs> actually yeah. believed that when you were sick, you shouldn't eat because uh-huh. you want to starve your illness. Sure. You can't give it food. And it's actually just keep that in mind because it ends up that our thinking really hasn't gone anywhere from Hippocrates. Hippocrates basically had the the human cognition down pretty well. We still think that if we just starve it, Mm -hmm. it'll go away. So moving on from Hippocrates, let's 
move on a few centuries, 1909. Okay. The scientist whose name is Moreski, he noticed something very interesting. He has a bunch of mice running around, and some of them are underfed and others are not. They're fed normally. And the ones who are underfed, when he tries to put tumors in them, they don't grow as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas the ones who are fed normally, the tumors grow and they're happy tumors. I guess if your body is malnourished, even outside bodies will be malnourished too. Exactly. Well, but that was the beginning of modern research into calorie restriction um, and cancer or overall health. Mm -hmm. So first let's um, realize that fasting is not the same thing as calorie restriction. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of work done over, especially over the last 50 years on calorie restriction, which is basically reducing your intake of calories from the recommended daily rate and i'm not even saying like the fake recommended daily rates which are too high anyway but yeah. like what you what your body should be eating for maintenance restricting from that point um, by about 20 to 40% every day just chronically yeah. um that's called caloric restriction there's been a lot of work on that there were about 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago um this breakthrough quote unquote when this 20 20- 20-year longitudinal study on rhesus monkeys was finally concluded, and it showed that these monkeys lived longer and also had a 50% reduction in cancer. Okay. So, yes, I remember that coming out, and it comports with what I thought, which is that the rather all the old people I know didn't eat that much, and all the people (laughs) who did eat a lot didn't live to be that old. And then we have some anecdotal evidence that um, people who are overweight— do have higher incidence of certain types of cancers mm-hmm. um, than people who aren't. So this is just kind of anecdotal a- information. Yeah. But going back to kind of cancer and fasting, I think some of the original interest came from the study, which was looking at caloric restriction. It was like, oh, hey, interesting. We've got these mice in 1909. Now we've got these monkeys who were actually followed scientifically for over 20 years. And they're a lot closer to humans. And they seem to have a 50% reduction in cancer. So caloric restriction, we live longer and, hey, maybe it can help cure cancer. Hey, let's take this seemingly normal idea to the illogical extreme. Right, of fasting. So there are different types of fasting, as I found out. I found out more about fasting in the last week than I have in a while. Than you did in a lifetime of Yom Kippur's. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. So there's intermittent fasting, uh, which is different from caloric restriction because you don't eat for certain periods of time and you don't eat at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But as opposed to caloric restriction, which reduces your calories over a long period of time, intermittent fasting allows you to not eat, say, for 24 hours, 48 hours, 36 hours. And so that is kind of the latest thing where people are saying, oh, you know, maybe this will have a beneficial effect on cancer. Cancer cells are hungry. They need to grow. Um, They're the most active cells in your body. They need glucose. If you fast, you're depriving your body of glucose, so you're not letting them feed, and so it should theoretically slow down the growth of the cancer cells. But is the idea to do it before you even know you have cancer? So there are, or so to there, do it when, yeah. yeah. Okay, so there are different theories. So caloric restriction, right, yeah. would, would be something that you do your whole life, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a lifestyle's choice, and you would hope that, like these monkeys, it would help prevent cancer. Now, with intermittent fasting, what is going on is a much more short-term process. So it's short-term glucose starvation. So that's kind of the, that's the theory behind it, um, that basically... In the short term, you're starving these cells, mm-hmm. um, and that should help. But we have a lot of data, not a lot, but we have some data on 
fasting in non-cancer patients. Um, we don't really have any data on this in cancer patients that are human. We have, we have data on cancer patient mice. Tell me about the mice. <laughs> so, um, and the reason is because with a human, no real doctor would say, would allow it. Would yeah, say, so, don't get treated, so but let's, just stop eating. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's just put a big red flag over this whole thing that says there's, there have been zero yeah. randomized clinical trials of this. Zero. Okay. So that's that's where the data is with humans. So we have absolutely nothing to go on. But let's look at some cancer mice. So good name for a band. Yes, cancer <laughs> mice. I like it. I like it. Um, so in some mouse studies, um, fasting did seem to show that tumors would shrink in mice, and in non-cancer mice. We do see, and in non-cancer, they're, they're going to open for the cancer mice. <laughs> the, <laughs> they're the going to the non-cancer mice. mice yeah. Yes, you do seem to see a lower incidence of eventual cancer mice formation. Yeah, but this is mice. Okay, um, and that's that's what we've got to go on. And it's not the data is not that clear cut. This is just there is some. There are a few studies that have shown this. Right. And in non non-cancer humans with fasting, you do see actually some great some good things happen. So you get um, increased insulin sensitivity. Um, your stress resistance goes up. You see, and you do see reduced morbidity, hence longer lifespan with some fasting stuff. So there, there's there's some. Now good when they say fasting, what kind of fasting? Intermittent. Intermittent, two day fasts. Um, so this is this is the result of meta-analysis from okay. a lot of different types lot of, of different fasts. fasts. Yes. So we do see certain things like this, and that's actually that the last – well, was it the last thing I said? No, the last thing I said was age. The first thing I said, which was the um, stress resistance, is one of the other things that people are looking at when it comes to cancer. So the first thing is the glucose, right? If you starve them, they will die. Mm-hmm. The second one is stress resistance. So – what happens when your body is food deprived is your cells go into a stress resistant state because it thinks, uh oh, something's wrong, like I better protect myself. And so your body can either build cells or it can protect cells and it can't expend energy on doing both. So when you're eating a lot, you're building cells, you're growing, you're expanding. In every in every sense of the way of the word, you're expanding, but your mind's expanding. Lots of good things happen when you're yeah. eating. But then when you stop eating, your body says, oh, I can't grow more cells right now. I need to protect. So I'm going into stress resistance mode. And that can actually help with cell division, which you need help with when you have cancer. So that's the other thing that is potentially, that's the other potential mechanism of action. That's the other thing that people are looking at. And there have been some, so this is voluntary. Some patients who've been fasting during chemotherapy um, show that they have they can tolerate it better. They don't throw up as much, yeah. which actually makes all also, the sense hear, in the world. Yeah, also, <laughs> you lose your appetite, but that's different. Fasting well, so, so during let's, chemo is no way to tell if fasting. Yeah. Works. So actually, all of the all of the things that have been done with humans have all been in conjunction with normal therapy. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been just like let's fast to cure cancer. Right. It's all been with radiation, with chemotherapy, right. with all this and fasting. But there haven't been it's not randomized controlled trial. And we do need to put another huge caveat here, which is that a lot of cancer patients are very underweight. Um, and that has a lot of really bad effects, and that really affects their health negatively. Right. And so to tell someone who is already barely holding on, to, barely able to maintain their weight, let's put you on a diet for a week. Let's say you can't eat anything. 
this is this is what we were talking about earlier. Do the benefits outweigh the, <laughs> outweigh the risks? What are we actually doing? Right. Um, and so I think that it would be unethical. I think you and I think you have to be really careful. Yeah. Like it's you know if you're if you have a totally healthy person or someone who's a little bit overweight and you're like okay we're, you're not going to eat for mm-hmm. four days. I can see a lot of positive impact that might potentially happen, right? But if you see someone who's like not on the verge of starvation, but someone who's severely malnourished and whose immune system is already not doing well and who's already having all sorts of problems, and you're like, okay, we're going to deprive you of nutrients for for a few days. Well, to bring it back to Hippocrates, that would be a violation of his oath. It would indeed. It would indeed. And so there's, yeah, so now we know why people are trying to do this, but they haven't been able to do it successfully yet, and we don't have any data in non-cancer humans, in normal humans, as opposed to, or even cancer humans, only cancer mice. Cancer mice. Fasting as a means to attack or control or combat cancer might have some benefits. If it can be done, a lot of caveats, but if it can be done safely, is that bullshit? No, that's not bullshit the exact way you phrased it. That's exactly right. Well done, right, Mike. <laughs> right, right. Because you could always get in. Yes, on the bullshit. No, I actually you, you so so big, you know yeah. what? You know what? In the in the scope of the bullshitty topics we've done, yeah. this one is a lot less bullshitty than I than I thought it was going to I be. I agree. I agree. Like I I came into this thinking this was gonna be slam dunk bullshit, and it's actually right. not slam dunk bullshit. Yeah, yeah. There is, like I said, there are zero randomized controlled clinical studies as of now, but there is reason to think that there could be potential here if done right. Right. And so there yeah. she is, Maria Konnikova with the tomahawk alley-oop slam dunk bullshit. She she won the bullshit three-point contest back in the 80s, beating Larry Bird. Steph Curry has surpassed her in terms of chucking in the bullshit from 23 feet. But she is our doyen of Is That Bullshit, also the author of The Biggest Bluff. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Yesterday, a federal appeal panel ruled that North Carolina's congressional boundaries were drawn illegally. The ruling affirms a previous decision that North Carolina's congressional boundaries were drawn illegally. And the reason that courts keep ruling this is clear. It's that North Carolina's boundaries were drawn illegally. What's interesting is that now with, what, two and a half months before the midterms, the court could actually force those bad boundaries to be redrawn more fairly. That seems kind of crazy. They already held primaries. I mean, who would run? Who would be eligible? How do they nominate candidates? It seems quite impractical. One idea is for the November election to serve as a primary for some set of fairly drawn districts, and then the general election might happen at a later time. But before Congress convenes in January, yeah, nice democracy we got going here, right? What's actually crazier about all this is how unfair the system is and how much we accept it. I mean, for those of us paying attention, we know there is gerrymandering. We know it's a problem. We understand it. We think of it as, yeah, elections are a tug of war and it's kind of on a slope and that's a little unfair. Have you ever done tug of war on a slope? It's really unfair. It's effects are profound. Now, I want to say, Democrats engage in gerrymandering too, but not to the extent and not as aggressively, or maybe you want to say not as effectively as Republicans do. And what that means is that Democrats are not getting in the way of the voters' will being reflected 
in Congress, whereas Republicans are quite effectively stymieing the will of the voters to have representatives in Congress who actually represent them. North Carolina, it's a slightly Republican state, a bit more Republican than Democrat. The Cook Political Voting Index says it's plus three Republican. It has a Democratic governor. It has two Republican senators. I just use those races because they're ungerrymanderable. So again, plus three Republican. Let me give you a couple states that are plus three Democrat. The only two states that are exactly plus three Democrat, according to Cook, Maine and New Mexico. Maine and New Mexico, between them, have five representatives in Congress, three Republicans, two Democrats. That, that's pretty even, as it should be. North Carolina, because of gerrymandering, has a congressional delegation of 10 Republicans, three Democrats. Because of gerrymandering, Pennsylvania, a state Cook says, is exactly even in terms of a Republican or Democratic lean, sent 13 Republicans to Congress in 2016 against five Democrats. Now, Pennsylvania congressional maps have been redrawn. That was forced by the courts. And Democrats have since picked up a seat in a special election and Republicans are retiring. So the state will eventually look a little more reflective of the actual will of the voters of that state. Here's what it means nationally. In order to win the House, in order to get 50.11% of the seats in the House, which is 218 out of 435 seats, Democrats don't have to win 50.11% of the vote. All political experts say they have to win at least 52% of the vote. And according to some good political scientists, Democrats will have to win at least 55% of the vote. Now, I don't know how that seems to you. It might seem wrong, but not extremely wrong or extremely unfair, but it's extremely unfair. And here's why. This is a highly partisan age. The parties are ideologically sorted. And candidates know what voters want to hear, so they're not going to take crazy positions. There are some districts that are just flat out, and no matter how you draw them, they will be uncompetitive. But when you get to any competitive district, you are going to have baked in a 40% base for anyone with a D next to their name and anyone with an R next to their name. So that means you're really fighting over the 20% of the electorate that's not in that 40% base. So what we're saying is, if Democrats have to win 52 or 55% of the vote, they have to do all of that within the 20% of persuadable voters. So if they had to win 55% of the vote, that means they have to win three quarters of the persuadable voters. They have to win 15 out of the 20% that's persuadable. Even if you go with the lower estimate of what percent of the vote Democrats have to win nationwide, it's like saying that they have to win 60% of the persuadable voters. That's, uh, that would be a 52 versus 48 decision. And that's pretty monumental. All this works better with graphics, but take my word for it. It is uphill. It is unfair. One party has to win more of the vote. That same party has an advantage in the Senate in numbers, but their senators represent far fewer Americans than Democratic senators. That party, by the way, won two of the past five presidential elections with fewer votes than the losing party. And you might note that the Supreme Court will in all likelihood, within a year, have four of its nine members serving for life who were appointed by presidents who first achieved the office having gotten fewer votes than their opponents. Like I said, nice democracy we've got going here. It's not a shambles. It's not uncorrectable, but it is unfair uphill and undemocratic, undemocratic with a small D.
These days, there is a lot about our democracy that seems to have a very small D. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who do the 16-8-8-16 fast. So for 16 hours, you fast. Then for eight hours, you allow yourself to eat. But then for the next eight hours, you say, my God, what did I eat? And then you go to your cousin's Sweet 16, and you're like, oh, my God, the hors d'oeuvres are so good. What am I, made of stone? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is doing a fast food fast, which doesn't mean he doesn't eat fast food. He just eats all food fast, you know, to fool his body. The gist. We are doing the SAF fast, which means you can eat any food you want. You just have to eat it in the opposite order it was served, you know, to fool your body. Umpru depru dupru. And catch the cancer mice on tour. They're playing Toad's Place in New Haven and Hammerjacks in Baltimore. Check them out. Thanks for listening.